Good morning, church. Good to see you all out there again. And uh, once again, good to see uh, folks I haven't seen in a long, long time. Welcome back. I won't look at you because if I look at you, everybody will turn around and look at you. I don't want to embarrass you. My dad used to do that to me when I was a kid. It's a surefire way to get everybody to look is just to look at somebody while you're talking, right, Eli? Then everybody will look at you. See how everybody's doing? Yeah. Hey, you can open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or stay there, I guess. And uh, before I go any further, let me get this out of the way, because I have not seen my family yet today, but today is Alex's birthday, right? So happy birthday, Peanut. We love you. You want to come up and give a speech? You sure? Okay. All right. Well, happy birthday, Peanut. I think the sun's shining. She, she's 12, so yeah. She should give a speech. Isn't that when they do it at 12, right? Come on up. Give, you don't want to? No? Okay. We'll stop torturing you now. All right. First Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter 11. And Terry just read it for you. And this week will be the first time, I believe, that we've uh, observed communion as a church since the first week of June. Can you believe that? June 2020. So it's been a little bit, you know, and we did it outside last time we did it. We're going to use those same awful uh, pre-filled cups, and yeah, it won't be so bad. They won't be heated by the sun, uh, but they're up here, and we're going to do that and observe communion today. Hey, it got me thinking this morning. I said something to Nick this morning. We were talking right in front here, and I lifted off the lid and said, hey, we've got these pre-filled cups, you know, and he said, good. You want to worry about dropping the tray today? And I thought, yeah, it's true, you know, like, and it made me think that when I was a kid, this is a true story, when I was a kid... Uh, and I don't know when I exactly grew out of this, but when I was a kid, every Sunday uh, that I would come in and see the plates and see the place set for communion, I got nervous because my greatest fear was exactly that. I didn't want to drop the tray. And then another thing was, it didn't bother me with the bread, but when I got that little cup, you know, that little cup, my hands would almost tremble, you know, because I just didn't want to drop that thing. And you should drive me crazy. The greatest relief on, on the Sunday we observed Lord's Supper was the clicking of those cups going into the pew. Remember that? The little holes in the back of the pews. And uh, so that's my early thoughts about communion. You can tell that I really had a good grasp on the whole thing. And uh, I was really, really into it in the right way. Listen, I ran across something this week that really, um, I started out with something light. Now let's talk about something heavy. I, I, I ran across something this week that that really kind of refocused my attention on the Lord's Supper and, and the importance of it. I was studying for it, and I just sort of ran across this uh, and then started following the, the, the rabbit trail, so to speak. And I want to share it with you, and, and hopefully this will help to recenter us when we observe the Lord's Supper, especially since it's been such a long time. Now, <clears throat> you know, I think you know, you should know, that in our church, we observe two ordinances. We saw one of them last week. You remember what that is? Baptism. And then the other ordinance is? Oh, come on. That's the easy one. Ready? The Lord's Supper, communion, right. So we, we observe them in Baptist churches as ordinances and not sacraments. I won't get into the difference today. You can come talk to me if you want to know what the difference is. But we observe these two ordinances in the church. And when we observe the Lord's Supper, we're uh, observing the Lord's Supper in a way we call the the memorial 
uh, view of the Lord's Supper. So in other words, when we go to, for instance, uh, verse 24, and Jesus said after he had given thanks, he broke it. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's called, we, we take that in the remembrance aspect of the Lord's Supper and we take a memorial view of it, that each time we're doing it, we're memorializing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, his sacrifice for us. We're memorializing his work on the cross for us. Now, I say all that to say, and of course, baptism, by the way, we do a certain way as well. Uh, we only do it one way. You know what we call that? Immersion's right, but we only do it one way. A lot of churches do immersion and but we only do it one way. We, we baptize believers, only believers. Anyone who's able to make a profession of faith on their own, as, even as a young person or as a child, all the way up through adulthood, if you can profess on your own that you believe in Jesus as your Savior, you believe in what He did for you at the cross and that He was raised again, then you're baptized as a believer. So we, these are two ordinances, believer baptism and also the memorial view of the Lord's Supper. Now, all those things seem pretty ordinary to us, I think. But what struck me this week as I was studying this is that they weren't always so ordinary. We can lose sight of this. You know, in the 16th century, some of you are aware that uh, a German monk named Martin Luther, I was also shocked as a child to know that there was another Martin Luther, and he was German and didn't come from the South, you know? Any of you ever get confused on that? I did when I was a kid. But Martin Luther was a German monk who... Uh, who wanted to see some reforms in the Catholic Church. And so he, in 1517, October 31st, Reformation Day, nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And he set off what we call the Protestant Reformation, where eventually there would, there would be denominations of Protestants, protesters, who would break away from the Roman Catholic Church. And we would have, of course, Lutherans. We would have Presbyterians. But there was another group underline another group of reformers who were sort of coming of age in that same time. About 10 years after Luther started his Reformation, this other group began to emerge, and they showed up on the scene. Uh, their hallmark, or the thing that distinguished them from the rest of the reformers, was their view on baptism. And they called these people Anabaptists. Somebody asked me about Anabaptists just this week. And Anabaptists uh, means, the word just means those who baptize again. Now, why would they have to baptize again? Come on, you know this. Because they were baptized as infants, and so when they became believers and were able to make their confession of faith, these men and, and women who had studied their Bibles believed that the only evidence we see in the Scriptures of baptism is when somebody makes a profession of faith. And so upon their profession of faith, they were being baptized again. Well, this was not a popular thing. This was not popular at all with the Reformers or the Roman Church. In fact, both of them saw it as a vile thing, and there was intense persecution against these early Baptists. In 1517 or 1527, the, the Duke of Bavaria gave orders that imprisoned Anabaptists should be burned at the stake. They were given an opportunity to recant. And if they recanted, they didn't have to be burned at the stake. They could simply be beheaded. This is the type of the hatred for this type of thing. In, in 1528, King Ferdinand of Austria commissioned a company of executioners to go out through all the land and root out anybody who was found to be an Anabaptist and kill them on the spot, executed on the spot. No trial, no jury, 
No opportunity to recant. Executed on the spot in South Germany, 400 mounted soldiers were sent out to find and execute anyone who was rebaptized. Eventually, they doubled that force to 800 mounted soldiers who went out through all the land searching simply for people who had been baptized as believers. Now, these, keep in mind, were not just uh, persecutions coming from the Roman Catholic Church, but also from some of the reformers as well. This whole view of being rebaptized was a thing that was considered vile in those early days. And then later on, about uh, 20 years later or so, across the English Channel, in the year 1555 to 1558, the reign of one of the most famous queens of all time, you know her as Bloody Mary. The Queen Bloody Mary, she executed 288 Protestant reformers by burning them at the stake. And their crime was different. It wasn't about baptism this time, but can you guess which ordinance it might have been about this time? It was about the Lord's Supper, and particularly their view of the Lord's Supper, in which they parted with the Catholic Church, which believes that when the priest uh, gives the rites at the Lord's Supper, that one of the things that we're doing there, according to the Catholic Catechism, which I read this week, and some of you may have learned as a child, is that in the moment that the priest consecrates the, the bread and the wine, what he's doing is he's uh, re, uh, re-sacrificing Jesus. Now you say that's ridiculous. If you read it in the catechism, it's, it's not ridiculous. And in fact, the words in the catechism are that the bread represents or represents. This is where it's critical. We say it represents. They say it represents with a hyphen in there. Represents. Because every time they do it, they're giving a sacrifice of the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus. These things are transformed, so to speak, into those elements. Now, the Reformers broke from that tradition and said, no, we don't believe that's going on anymore. And so they were burned at the stake for how they viewed the elements of the Lord's Supper. J.C. Ryle said this. Listen to this quote. He says, The doctrine in question was the real presence of the body and blood of Christ in the consecrated elements of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Did they or did they not believe that the body and blood of Christ were really, that is, corporally, literally, locally, and materially present under the forms of bread and wine after the words of consecration were pronounced? Did they or did they not believe that the real body of Christ, which was born of the Virgin Mary, was present on the so-called altar so soon as the mystical words had passed the lips of the priest? Did they or did they not? That was the simple question. If they did not believe and admit it, they were burned. Now, you may be wondering, why all the happy news this morning when we're getting ready to observe the Lord's Supper? Why bring up the fact that people were burned at the stake and beheaded over their view of baptism? Why bring up the fact that hundreds of reformers were burned at the stake for their view of the elements, just the elements of the Lord's Supper? Why would I bring that up at all? And the reason I bring that up and the thing that it helped me to remember this week as I was preparing for this is that historically and throughout the history of the church, the Lord's Supper and baptism have been serious Deadly, serious things. Things that we've very often taken very lightly. Things that we've just gotten used to. 
sort of shocked me this week to think about how many people lost their lives. Could you imagine being baptized as a believer knowing it could cost you your life? Just simply saying, no, I don't believe it's the actual body of Christ. I just believe it's memorializing the body of Christ and knowing that that could cause you to be burned at the stake. Serious business. I think John Piper got it right when he was commenting on the persecution of Christians during this time, particularly on baptism and communion. And he said this, he says, they may have gotten some things out of balance, which I think is an understatement. They may have gotten some things out of balance, but we don't even have scales. Anything goes and nothing is a big deal. I think he's right. And so I hope that just hearing that, that little bit of the history of what people paid to be baptized and paid to observe the Lord's Supper in the way that we believe the Bible teaches us. This is serious, serious business, what we're doing. What's at stake with the Lord's Supper that makes it such a big deal? I think probably I could have come up with 20 things, honestly. I mean, there's just so many things, but I, I can't preach a 20-point sermon. I just can't do it. I won't do it to you, but I'll give you a few things that are at stake when we observe the Lord's Supper and just to try to center us again on the importance of what we're doing here. So write these down. Maybe I didn't give you a PowerPoint. I apologize this morning. I didn't do it. She gets on me. Anytime I don't give her notes, she gets on me. But you could do it. Pay attention. Here we go. What's at stake? What's at stake when we observe the Lord's Supper? I'll give you several things. Number one, Christian unity is at stake. The first thing that Paul addresses, did you hear it when Terry was reading it? He said he had harsh words for the Corinthian church. And the first thing that he addresses is the issue of unity in the church. Look at verse 17 again. He says, but in the following instructions, he's getting ready to, to, to instruct them on the Lord's Supper. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. She's going to address these divisions. And then he goes on to explain the problem in verse 20. Look at verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So apparently in the early church, by the way, thinking through this for us as a church, in the early church, they observed, anytime they gathered, they observed the Lord's Supper. I don't think it's requirement. I don't think that it's a legal requirement, so to speak, of the church. I don't think it's a requirement in the Scripture to do it every week, but it seems that they did it any time that they gathered. When you come together, is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, verse 21, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Get this, another gets drunk. You think your church has problems? I mean, really, like if you ever just get down about Burntwood's church. Just read 1 Corinthians. I'm telling you. They had some issues. And one of their issues is people were getting drunk. Some people were eating entire meals, living it up. And then other people who were poor had nothing at all during what they were calling the Lord's Supper. He says, this isn't the Lord's Supper that you're observing. Some of you are eating. Some of you go without. Some of you are getting drunk. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? And do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not commend you in this. No. And the larger issue here that he's touching on 
or a large issue, let me say, that he's touching on is just not the process of how we observe the Lord's Supper, but the whole issue of unity in the body of Christ. Come, when you come together, there are divisions among you. That's the whole thing he's, he's dealing with here. This idea of division, the celebration of Lord's Supper. Listen, listen to this. The celebration of Lord's Supper is not an individual experience. It's not an individual thing. This is a, meant to be a, a corporate experience where the body of Christ comes together. And you see that here. This is one of the most important passages, by the way, when we talk about church and what church is and how church functions and whether or not, by the way, you ought to be a member of a church. Let me take a shot at you now. I don't do this often. But if you're holding out on membership, I believe that this is one of the passages that reinforces the biblical uh, imperative to become a member of a church. You say it doesn't say member there. Well, it does say that they come together as a church. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, it tells them to put somebody out of the church. In 2 Corinthians, it tells them to accept somebody back into the church. Now, how do you put somebody out of the church if you don't know who's part of the church? So you need to be a member. Come together as a church. So they're coming together. It's a corporate experience. We're meant to come together. So our unity is at stake here. What are we saying to the world here when we take the Lord's Supper? I'm dreadfully sad at the division that's emerging in the church over the last couple of years. I mean, like, just from a pastor's heart, it's heartbreaking to hear people tell me, I don't think I can come back to Burnt Woods. I don't think I can do it because of what I've seen other people in my church family say on social media. Dividing over politics, dividing over uh, our, our ideas on social issues, dividing over health issues. One of the most divisive things that's ever happened in the history of the American church is nothing theological. It's a stinking mask. Like it's tearing churches apart. Division in the church. The Lord's Supper is a a moment when we ought to be able to come together, set aside everything, and proclaim our unity together as a church. When I take the bread and when you take the bread... Listen to me, brothers and sisters. When we take the bread and the cup in our hand, there shouldn't be an issue of whether I'm a Republican or a Democrat, a conservative or a liberal. My views on what happened on January 6th or last summer shouldn't matter whether I believe I should be vaccinated or not shouldn't matter, whether I want to wear a mask or not shouldn't matter. When I take the cup, in my hand, in the bread in my hand, I'm saying with you that I'm with you. I'm unified with you in Christ. There's no division here. We can argue about the other stuff out there. We can argue and then love each other. But when we take the cup, we're saying there's something bigger. Something bigger. Number two, what's at stake here? The gospel's at stake. Look at verse 24. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so here we have Paul repeating the words of Jesus, pointing out that the bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us, and the cup represents the blood that was shed for us. By the way, the greatest argument against the transubstantiation. Did I get that right? My Catholic friends, I get that right. There's three views. Is that the right one? Is it transubstantiation? So the, 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 the greatest argument against that is that when Jesus said this, he was actually in the flesh, and he said, this is my body. Well, it can't be his body, and he's, I mean, no, nah, it doesn't work that way. So here Jesus is pointing us to the elements of the Lord's Supper, pointing us to the sacrificial death on the cross. Listen, the elements of the Lord's Supper point us, each time we observe the Lord's Supper, point us to the gospel, recenter us around the gospel, help us to remember that God is holy, that God Himself cannot bear sin. And when Adam and Eve sinned against God, In the garden, they became objects of the wrath of God. And every other person after Adam and Eve, who's born of a woman, who has an earthly father, became by nature a child of wrath, deserving the wrath of God because we're born with a sin nature. That's who we are. We sin against God because we're sinners. But God so loved the world that He gave Jesus. He sent His own Son and Jesus lived for us and eventually went as a sacrificial lamb, the, 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 the one sacrifice that could satisfy the wrath of God, the Son of God goes to the cross. His body is ripped to shreds. His blood spills out as He hangs on the cross for us. And He becomes our substitute so that anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the Gospel. That's the Gospel. And every time we take the bread, every time we take The cup, every time we observe the Lord's Supper, we're once again drawing our attention back to the sacrifice of Jesus, back to the work of Jesus, which is where our attention needs to be. I don't want to chase rabbits here, but we talked about this yesterday, Seth, that one of the things that really is sad about the the current state of the church in Western culture is that we've drifted so far away from what it's supposed to be about in so many ways. Like it's almost always about us. And I know that's like so easy to say, it's not about us, it's about Jesus. But it really is almost always about us. Like I hope, I hope not here. I hope you don't feel that here because I strive extra hard to never make it about us here. But so much of the church is just consumed with me and getting through the work week and how to have a better marriage and how to raise my kids and how to do all the things I need to do in life and inform me, help me, give me some help to do all those things. And all the while we're losing sight of the fact that the, the, the thing that matters most is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And everything flows out of that, flows from the cross and back to the cross. And without the cross, if you're listening to me and I can get through a message without giving you the gospel, you say, why do you share the gospel every week? Don't you believe we're saved? Yeah, most of you, I believe you're saved. I don't mean that to be funny. I just assume that there's probably somebody here who's not. But that's not the only reason 
I, I, I share it every week because that should be the centerpiece of who we are. Always. Always. So it brings us back to the gospel. So our unity is at stake. The gospel's at stake. Proclamation of the gospel is the last thing. You remember the last words of Jesus to his disciples? The quiz time. Anybody want to take a shot at the last words of Jesus to his disciples? I'll give you the last word. What, what book of the Bible are the last words of Jesus to his disciples? They're in, they're in the book of Acts. First chapter of Acts. Fooled you. I wasn't trying to fool you, but that, that's where they're at. And do you know, remember what Jesus said? They, he was asked a question, right? He's asked a question. He's asked because the disciples still just can't get it through their boneheaded, thick skulls that Jesus is not there to give them an earthly kingdom, right? They say, will you at this time restore the kingdom, Jesus? Now is it time to overthrow the Romans? Jesus says, no, it's not for you to know. You're not intended to know these things. He said, which, by the way, is a good word for not becoming preoccupied with prophetic issues and the return of Christ. Jesus said clearly, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You'll be my witnesses. You will proclaim. You'll be proclaimers. Now, we've been given that task as believers. Agreed? We've been given the task as believers to be proclaimers of the gospel, but oftentimes we fit certain people into that category and believe that, that we will delegate that responsibility to certain people, which are typically pastors and missionaries. They're the, they're the real proclaimers, not all of us. They're the real proclaimers, and, and they'll do all the proclaiming and preaching. But here we have, in verse 26, look at it. Paul's saying that every time we observe the Lord's Supper, we become proclaimers. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We're proclaiming His death. We're taking the the bread and the cup, and every single time we do it, we're witnessing to the world to people who might be present in this room who don't know Jesus as Savior, to nowadays people who might be watching on the Internet who don't know Jesus as Savior. But any time as a church we come together, unified around the bread and around the cup, we're not only uh, witnessing the gospel, but we're proclaiming the gospel, and we're told we'll do this until He returns. We're proclaiming the gospel. And so all of these things are, are vital to what we're doing here. This is not just like, you know, first Sunday of the month. It's time to get through it, not drop the cup. I mean, this is deadly important. That as a body of believers right now, in just a moment, Gary, you can come on up. In just a moment. We're going to set aside every single difference in this place. Every political ideology goes out the window. Every idea about social 
issues goes out the window. Every frustration about this virus that we've been dealing with for a year now goes out the window. Every disagreement goes out the window. And we're going to come together as a church, as believers. And we're going to witness the gospel in the bread, in the cup. We're going to see his body broken for us. Man, you can come forward. I think Terry, Nick, Ron, Chuck. There you are. We're going to witness the gospel and we're going to proclaim the gospel together. We're going to proclaim that we believe Jesus lived for us. He died, his body broken, his blood shed for our sins to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. That's what we're doing today. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head and I'm going to read to you the remainder of the passage. And I want you to hear this because Paul does give them more instructions. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we we are judged by the Lord, we are so disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it is not for judgment about the other things I'll give directions when I come.